I invite you to have a seat. At this time, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids. If you are ages three to five and you'd be interested in, in learning a lesson and playing with some uh, Play-Doh and things like that, you're able to do that now. You're going to go to my right. For most of you, you're going to go to your left, back to this back corner where Brett is standing. This morning, they're going to be learning about the holiness of God. You're going to be learning about the holiness of God. And in so many words, we will be doing the same thing this morning. I want to just say this to you. Several other people have had the opportunity to, to greet you with a good morning and a happy Easter, and I feel left out. I want to do the same. And so from uh, Josh McLean, one of the pastors here, I want to extend a good morning and a happy Easter. Um, I, I'm able to carry a lot of the, the preaching load here at Hagerstown Church, and again, it's my privilege to, on Easter Sunday, bring the Word of God, the message to you from His Word. And so I intend to do that from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you have a, a paper copy of God's Word or even a digital one on your person, I would invite you to turn uh, with the rest of us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a copy, uh, you can look to the screens and it will be displayed for you as we look this morning. We'll be in several different places, um, but we'll begin reading in, uh, in chapter 15, verse 12. As you turn there, let me just say this. As when I woke up this morning, uh, I was reminded of how blessed we are as the church to be able to meet. I thought about last Easter and just a, a rough time. We've all come through a, a really difficult time, each of us experiencing that in different ways. Um, we're starting to see not just the trees begin to bloom, but life itself seems to be blooming, doesn't it? Last year, I remember on that Easter Sunday, unable to gather with you, and that was discouraging for me, I hope, and believe that it was for you as well. So I'm just thankful by God's providence and his kindness that we get to do that, not just today, but every single Lord's Day. And so I'm encouraged to be here with you. You guys are an encouragement to me. Um, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. As I gather with God's people, it lights a fire in my heart. As we gather around the Word of God, believing that the Spirit of God is going to use this time together to glorify Him and to edify His church. So I'm glad that uh, you're here with me this morning, and uh, I'm privileged to bring the Word to you. Today we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many today that are not here celebrating with us. In fact, they're scoffing. They're scoffing at the thought of the bodily resurrection of anyone, let alone the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth from the first century. Currently, factions like the New Atheists and men like Bart Ehrman, they've attempted to dismantle the Christian hope that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ during the early first century. But these men, they're not the first to do that and their argument also is not new. During the Enlightenment and, and the theological liberalism that followed in the 17th, 18th, and, and bleeded into the 19th centuries, uh, the resurrection again was attacked because it was not this observable, reproducible phenomenon. And so therefore it was deemed impossible by the elite, by the intellectuals. But even before that, at the beginning of the Middle Ages, Muslims had attacked the fact of the resurrection by claiming that Christians had crafted this really well thought out ruse in order to further establish their religion. And so they tried to undermine the testimony of the, of the New Testament, of the apostles. But all of these attacks 
on the historical foundation of our faith, which is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're not new. No, this and none of those times were the first time that it had actually been argued. In fact, in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, he defends the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he defends it against false teachers in Corinth who during the first century were, were saying, they were rejecting this idea that there will be a bodily resurrection of saints among the church. They're saying that's not a thing. And Paul, having started and helped to start that church, recognizes that and determines that there is some work to be done. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pens this book. And it is indeed a benefit to us this morning as we look at it. All these attacks on the historical foundation of the bodily resurrection, they're not new. So the Holy Spirit gives us this text this morning for us to be encouraged and to be helped. And so I pray that that is exactly what takes place this morning. So let's look at the text now. One of his arguments there begins in verse 12 of chapter 15. I'll read it for you. The Word of God says, Now, in Christ, or if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are raised, not even, are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do not believe this morning that we are of all people most to be pitied, but in some sense envied. As you, by your grace, have chosen to reveal the truths of our sinfulness and your holiness, of Christ's sacrifice and of his resurrection. Father, you've made known to us the path of life. You've made known to us and extended to us redemption. We lay hold of that this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. By your spirit, we pray that you would bless it. And we ask these things in the name of your most precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As is our regular custom, we're going to be working through this chapter a bit, specifically these few verses that we've just read. But before we begin, I really want to take a moment and highlight three arguments that are posited in this text and the surrounding context concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to look to the screen and jot these things down. These are three uh, points that the Apostle Paul Three arguments that he raises about the resurrection. The first is this, that it is incredibly important. 
You might be asking yourself this morning, why do we even celebrate the resurrection? What's so important about the resurrection? And I take it as not a disrespectful, irreverent but a question, but a truthful question saying, I would like to know the answer. What really is so important about the resurrection? We're going to look at that in just a moment. And Paul underlines that for us heavily. Another argument that we will talk about this morning is that it is well established. It's not really an argument. It's a presentation of facts. Paul says how credible and well-established the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that first Easter morn. And so it's incredibly important, Paul says. It's well-established, and finally, it has far-reaching effects. Far-reaching effects. I want to tell you this morning, I don't know every single one of you, but I know this about every single one of you, that the, re- the resurrection of Jesus Christ has infinite relevance to your life. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, there's nothing more important or more relevant to your life this morning. And Paul helps us to see that. Putting all these things together, I would really submit to you the main idea of the text this morning is, that the, is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a well-established fact that demands an appropriate response. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a well-established fact that demands an appropriate response. Unless you feel that you could blend into the sea of people this morning, I would encourage you to think about the answer or the application, rather, of this main point on a personal level. What does this mean to you? And I don't mean to say, how will you interpret this? But how will you apply it? Resurrection of Jesus Christ is a well-established fact that demands an appropriate response. And so you won't get out of here this morning without answering, I hope, that question. So let's back up to that first of the three arguments regarding the resurrection. The first was this, that the resurrection is incredibly important. Look at verse 12. The argument goes like this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Notice how Paul begins to put those two things together. The resurrection of the saints, the return of Christ, and a forward-looking future day, the past resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul ties these two things together. In verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if if Christ has not been raised... Look at verse 12. Paul enters into this argument saying, let's let's just say, let's, let's argue your point that Jesus did not rise. He says there are logical consequences if you say there is no resurrection and that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There are logical consequences to not believing in the bodily resurrection of saints in the future, and the past resurrection of Christ on that first Easter. Paul lists them out. Beginning in verse 13, he says, then not even Christ has been raised. Again, notice the connection. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the saints in a future hope, in a future sense, then you're also saying that Christ didn't rise from the dead as well. That's a logical conclusion. And he's using this if-then argument. If this is true, then this is also true. Have you ever wondered what the movies mean when they say, we need to give this man a proper Christian burial? 
Maybe it's in some type of a Western. Anybody here like Westerns? You, you ever wonder, like, what does it mean to have a proper Christian burial, right? Well, there's a lot of different ways that Christians have said, hey, let's, this is how we're going to reflect the hopes that we have of the resurrection. One of the ways is to say, we're actually going to bury our dead. We're going to bury our deceased. We're going to make sure that their bodies are in one particular spot. And we're also going to say, this is where they're at. We're going to put a stone there and we're going to carve their name in. And so for hopefully that will last until the resurrection of the dead, when Christ returns and calls his elect and his dead back from the dead, back to life. And so will they ever be with the Lord? They say, we want to We want to represent that. We want to prepare this body in some way. And so some would say that the grave needs to be facing the east because when Jesus returns and and all all rise from the dead, they want to rise. They're not with their back turned, right? Or maybe they say, we need to get all the body parts in here. We need to, to label them so people know who just rose from the dead. There's all kinds of different ways that Christians have demonstrated their belief and their future hope. But Paul's saying there's no sense in doing that if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no sense in believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you also don't believe that the saints who have gone on to be with the Lord, who have died in this life, will be risen. Look at verse 14. Here's another consequence. If there is no resurrection, he says, then our preaching is in vain. What does it mean to be in vain, worthless, of no use, no help to you? Paul is saying, if Christ did not rise, if there is no bodily resurrection, then what's the point of preaching? The message that Paul proclaims, the message that Jesus gave to his disciples, the message that this church teaches and asserts, Paul is saying, it's meaningless if there is no resurrection. It has no value. It has no power. Verse 14. Furthermore, not only is the preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. By the way, as we work through this, this may be a little bit discouraging for you. And I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the the heaviness of if Christ had not risen, what then? What would that mean? It would mean that your preaching is in vain. It would also mean that your faith is in vain. This is an all-encompassing item. It doesn't just mean the, the hope that you placed in the gospel of Jesus as you repented of your sin, and I hope that you've done that. But it doesn't just mean that. It means all of the things that are consequent to your faith. You believe in Jesus, and because you've done that, what have you, 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 you also spend time in prayer. Perhaps you spend time giving or your resources giving. You spend time in study. You, t- you spend time in evangelism. You've even, you've even suffered and you've experienced loss and persecution. All of these things are consequent to your faith. In a sobering way, Paul is saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if the resurrection is not true, then all of those things that are tied up in your faith, they mean nothing. Happy Sunday, right? Happy Easter. Well, stick, stick with me. It does get worse before it gets better. Look at verse 15. He says this, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul's saying, 
If Christ is not raised, we are confused fools and despicable liars. Look at verse 17. Moving forward, it just gets worse and worse. Your faith is futile. Again, inconsequential. Literally, it means nothing. Not that we work to attain anything. But Paul is saying that you gathering with the Lord's people on the Lord's day is worthless if Christ is not raised from the dead. It's good for nothing. It's as valuable as finding an old lottery ticket in an alleyway with losing numbers. It means nothing. And what's more, we're going down and down. He says in verse 17, furthermore, you're still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. One of the hopes offered in Christianity is the freedom from the guilt of sin. For those of you who are in Christ this morning, you enjoy that, don't you? We relish in that, that we've been forgiven of our sins, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Christ's righteousness given to us and our sin placed upon him as we celebrated this past Friday, we look toward the cross. But not only do we receive forgiveness from sins, but we also receive freedom from the power of sin. And we as a church, both collectively and individually, are experiencing that more and more as we go along. Freedom from the power of sin. It's the hope of all Christians to become more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. But listen, this is what Paul is saying. It's a logical, true argument. He's saying, but if Christ is not raised, then all of us, all of us, are still in our sins. We're all still liable. We're all still guilt-ridden. Sadly, look at verse 18. This may be an emotional one. He says, Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It's interesting, the language that Paul uses here, it kind of shows you where he stands on the matter. Instead of saying that they've died, He says they've fallen asleep. Now, they've not truly fallen asleep, but what he's saying is this. When you go to bed in the evening, in some sense, you appear to be dead, but what happens in the morning? At least for those here this morning, we've risen. We've woken up. And Paul says, hey, this person may have died. They may not be breathing. Their heart may uh, may not be beating. But here's the fact. If they're in Christ, it's basically just an extended sleep because they're going to rise again. But if Christ is not risen, then he says, these that have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. They'll not be found again. They'll not be seen again. It's a sad thought. It's a terrible thought. They're lost forever. Of course, Heaven is not primarily about seeing family members and friends and saints who have gone before. No, heaven is primarily about God and our eternal enjoyment of him forever. But in addition, we also, in Christ, will commune with him for eternity, but we'll also commune with the saints for eternity. He's not just called us to himself. He's called us as a people to himself. And yet, 
those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if there is no resurrection, they have perished, never to be seen again. This is a dreary plight. It is a sad thought. Finally, Paul summarizes the previous verses there in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, If in Christ, if those who are in Christ only have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we only have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this life is it, Paul argues, it's a sad state. The church is a sad place to be. If this is true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are a miserable lot. One of the themes of Christianity is that this life with all of its joys and sorrows is passing away, and it is passing away quickly. If you have a Christian perspective on life, you may say momentary is, uh, momentary is our suffering and momentary is our joy. But eternal joy stands before us when we are united with Christ face to face. So faith involves foregoing comfort at times as Christians. It, it, it involves foregoing security, foregoing pleasure, so that we can invest in eternity. In light of eternity, it will truly, as the song says, be worth it all when we see Jesus. This life for Christians can be challenging. It can be difficult. As many of you can testify this morning, and yet this is not our only hope we have hope in the resurrection and if we don't we're to be pitied so do you begin to see how incredibly important the resurrection is this doesn't make the case to prove that christianity is true it doesn't make the case to prove that there was actually a resurrection but paul says this it's vitally important and we're going to talk about proofs of it we're going to get into the apologetic side of this argument, but you need to know this first and foremost, that it is incredibly important. And to say that, oh, Christ died on the cross, but he didn't resurrect. Or that we can be saved in this life, but we won't be in the next. It's false and damnable heresy. It's dangerous. It's important. Our faith, it hinges on the tomb. If it's empty, we're to be envied. And if it's full, then we're to be pitied. If Easter's a ruse, then we're all to be pitied of all religions. But I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this morning, does these verses, verses 13 to 19, does that sound like the early church? Does that sound like the apostles? Does that sound like the disciples? Does it sound like Christ's church today? Were they to be pitied, Christ's disciples, many of them dying for their faith? I would argue this morning 
put before you, just as Paul does, and just as history has declared, no. It doesn't match up. And that brings me to the second argument that Paul is making that I would like to highlight this morning. And that is that not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ vitally important, incredibly important, but it is also well-established. If you have your Bible, just turn back a, maybe a page or a couple of verses to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to start reading in verse 3. This is what the Word of God says. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died. Yes, indeed, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, just as the prophets had declared Jesus died. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for, Paul, or for Peter. And then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, it says, at one time, most of whom at the time of this writing, Paul says, are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. There's that statement again. They're waiting for the resurrection. They've just fallen asleep. And then in verse 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me. Just cherry-picking a few things and observations out of those few verses. Seeing the risen Lord, listen up, kiddos, seeing the risen Lord transformed Peter from a cowering kitten to a ferocious lion. He denied Jesus three times Thursday night. And yet, just a little over a month later, he preaches and thousands give their lives to Jesus, turn from their sins and place their faith in that risen Lord. The one who denied his faith, denied his Lord whom he loved to who? To a girl, a little girl at the campfire in the dark of night. I don't know the man. He was transformed. And Paul includes that in here. That's a powerful apologetic for us. The 12 disciples were different You have to believe, you have to see that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most of them were happily killed. They happily laid down their lives for their faith. Recant, change your story, tell us something different, and you can live. And yet, that's just not the case. They died with Jesus is Lord on their lips. Furthermore, the 500 witnesses that Paul mentions here, no doubt they're contributors to that explosive growth of the church there at Pentecost. So many added to the church that day. The list of men and women who, who saw their resurre- resurrected Christ, it is it's very extensive. And of these men and women, many, if not most, died on that testimony, having never recanted and never turned back unwavering, knowing that their labors, much of the fruit which we enjoy this morning, that it would not be in vain. Why? Because the work that they did for Christ would be just as powerful and sustainable as their risen Lord was. So Paul states the facts. So many witnesses, so much courage, And so much had changed. 
And he brings us this conclusion. Look at verse 20, chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In a sense, he's the down payment. He's the first proof, the first fruit of the resurrection. It was a good faith payment that the rest of the resurrection of the saints, the elect of God, would also rise from their sleep at the appointed day. So the line of argument that Paul is leading is this, something similar. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a proven fact. It can't be denied. The apostles then and the first Christians, they should have been miserable. They should have been afraid, but they weren't. The apostles and the first Christians were actually bold and filled with confidence because of their witnessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, he brings us to this place and he says, hey, that's how they were. And he says, if you believe in the resurrection, that's how you should be as well. So he sets the trap, the logical progression here, and it ends with this. They were bold. Their faith was unwavered in the resurrection and yours should be too. We have not to fear. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, we know too that we will also rise. Furthermore, our preaching is accomplishing something. The message that we are hearing this morning is accomplishing something. The testimony, both explicit and implicit, that you are shining for your neighbors to see as you lift up Christ in private conversations and in public demeanor. Those are all not in vain, but accomplishing something. Your faith, your prayer, your giving, even your suffering, your persecution, it's doing something. It's accomplishing something. How do we know? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that our testimony is true, that our sins are forgiven, and that precious saints who have gone on before, and as Paul says so beautifully, have fallen asleep, they too will rise with us in the last day. All of this is true. And we who enjoy these truths are not to be pitied. In some sense, we are to be envied. That we have this hope. And so not only is the resurrection incredibly important, And not only is it well-established, but finally, it is far-reaching. It is far-reaching. Jesus had burst through the grave. He had won a victory over sin and death for all of those who would turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And by the way, that's an invitation for you this morning. I hope that you sense a hope. I hope that it's palpable. And I hope that you want that. If you do, it's available to you this morning as well. Would you do what saints have done since the beginning? Would you call your sin, sin, just like God calls it? Would you turn from your sin and would you place your faith in Jesus Christ, looking to the cross and looking to the empty tomb? The church of God should not be a miserable lot, as described in verses 14 through 19. It really should be described, as Paul says in verse 58 of that same chapter. 
Again, if you have your Bible, turn to the end. We're going to look at the far-reaching effects. 2,000 years into the future, to this morning, what does it have to say about us? If we believe in the resurrection, do the effects reach to us? Look at verse 58. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You guys know that if you see a therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Well, the therefore is saying, in consequence of the things I've just shared. The next thought is this. Because of that, now this. What is this? He says, because of that, be. Be. The present imperative indicative. What does that mean? Well, here's what basically what's Paul, what Paul is saying. He said, you're already doing this, but I want you to continue to do this. That applies to us as well. As we step into the family of God, as we're invited into the church by grace, we're baptized, demonstrating that we are with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that we've been cleansed from our sins. As we come to the table, as we enter into membership at the church, what are we to do? Well, we're to say this, I've just begun to do this, but the church from the beginning has been doing this thing. Therefore, he says, be. You're already doing it and continue into the future. Don't stop. But what are we to continue doing? What do we continue being? We're to continue being steadfast. We're to continue being immovable. Both of these terms are, are speaking to our firmness, our desire to not be moved away. He says, continue being steadfast. Continue being immovable. What, is he, what are we to be steadfast about? The argument that we're having with our spouse that day? The details of some situation that you, you've argued with your friend about, be firm, be, be immovable. As you box out in the paint, grabbing that basket or that, uh, the basketball, right? Getting ready to make that layup. Are you supposed to be firm and immovable there? No, what he's saying is, this is the facts. That Christ rose from the grave on the third day. And he says, don't move away from that. Be immovable when it comes to the fact that Christ rose from the dead. It's the hope of the resurrection that we're not to abandon. So Paul accurately recognizes that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the kingpin of the Christian faith. And if you remove the resurrection, there is no power. If you remove the resurrection, there is no life. And he says, don't move away from that. Hang in there. Don't be moved from that point. It's what your heart truly needs, isn't it? Is that not what you need this morning to know that all evil, all wrong, and death and sin will all be undone because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is that not what you need to know this morning? Deep down, as you consider the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you want it to be true. And you want all the sad and evil things that we experience and read about. We want them to be untrue. We want them to be erased. And Paul says, that desire that you have is anchored in reality. And you have that desire because God has given it to you. The empty tomb, it promises a full tomorrow. 
And so don't be moved from that. And we, by the way, church, we have no reason to doubt. The evidence of the resurrection is sure. Some 500 years after Jesus' resurrection, uh, some guy reports that Jesus didn't actually die. He found that out 500 years later, right? And so we're going to take his testimony over 500 eyewitness accounts. I don't know about you, but 500 years versus 500 eyewitnesses. I'm going to go with the 500 eyewitnesses. I think you should too. Furthermore, to deny the resurrection because it never happened before is is a simple-minded fallacy. As if we could say, well, it's impossible that we landed on the moon because we've never landed on the moon before. It's never happened before. It's impossible that some of you be here this morning because you've never been here before. That doesn't make any sense. That's completely illogical. Paul is saying to the church, you you already believe this. Continue to believe this. Don't stop, church. Don't stop believing. Don't move away from it. Don't give in to the false teachers that were tempting the church at Corinth. Don't give in to the critics. Doubt your doubts. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, and always be abounding in the work of the Lord. What does it mean to abound? What comes to mind? It is Easter. Maybe you're thinking about rabbits and lots of them abounding, running around, hopping around, hiding Easter eggs, right? I don't know what you're thinking about. If you're thinking that, you're wrong. And maybe if I planted that in your mind, forgive me. (laughs) Abounding means this, to to give yourself wholeheartedly to something. So the apostle Paul says, hey, because of the resurrection, don't move away from that, but because of it, Always be abounding, wholeheartedly giving yourself to this thing. And what are we to be doing? What does he say? Be abounding always in what? The work of the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, it's work done for the Lord. It really, it points back to the spreading of the gospel. It, it point back, points back to the Great Commission, which says what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing and teaching I want to ask you, what are you abounding in this morning? I told you it's going to get kind of real. Hopefully you don't escape this morning unscathed without answering that question. The relevance of the resurrection, what does that mean to you? Well, I hope that your answer to that question, what are you abounding in, would be the work of the Lord. And yet for so many of us, including myself, from time to time and throughout the week, I'm not abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm abounding in something else. What have you given yourself to? What dominates your time? What consumes your mind? Is it the risen Lord or is it something else? Now, he's not saying that you can't have a regular job, that you can't have hobbies, that you can't have friends. No, that's not what he's saying. Don't hear that. Well, I've got to be doing the work of the Lord. So, you know, I'll ask Pastor Josh about how I can start vacuuming the chairs or, you know, you know, setting this up and tearing that down, whatever it is, or making coffee. That's not what Paul is saying here. But he's saying that every facet of your life, every area of your life needs to be asking this, you need to be asking this question in regards to that area. Is this Abound, causing the work of the Lord to abound, or is it not? So the meals that you 
and joy and the friends that you invite over? Is that causing the work of the Lord to abound or not? The money that you spend, is that causing the work of the Lord to abound or something else? Does it have more to do with your kingdom or God's kingdom? The words that you speak, the things that you do with your hands, the places that your feet take you, are these in some way in connection with the work of the Lord or have you hijacked your own life, said that you believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ but your life is abounding in something else? Paul says that ought not to be. We're to wholeheartedly give ourselves to this work and we do that all the while knowing that our labor is is not in vain. Here we've come full circle. Knowing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sure, we can labor for Christ knowing that it matters. And that whatever the word of God, by the power of his spirit, accomplishes through his people cannot be destroyed just as Christ couldn't be destroyed by death and sin and the grave. So the implications of the empty tomb are that we must give ourselves wholly to the work of our king in full confidence that whatever he accomplishes through us will not be wasted. It won't be wasted. What have you given your life to? Let me ask you this. Keep that in mind. What have you given your life to at times? What are you tempted to give your life to? Ask yourself does it have the same promise of return as the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does it have the same return on investment? The things that you collect, the things that you give your time to, the things that consume your mind, do they have the same amount, the same promise of return? If it's in Christ Jesus, if it's in his resurrection, you have a 100% guarantee of an infinite return. That's a promise. Many of you have answered the, the call to, to run the race of materialism, to run the race and compete for success and for pleasure and for power. And if there is no resurrection, then you are a winner. And yet if there is a resurrection, and my friends, there indeed is, then the prizes that you win from those games are as precious as toy soldier parachutes or press-on tattoos. They have no value. And they do not last. The resurrection frees us from all that vanity. It frees us from all the worthlessness that plagues us. I love this statement. It captures what I believe Paul is getting at. I didn't come up with it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, the the resurrection of our Lord, it sets in motion the resurrection of our single-minded focus and hope. Because Christ resurrected, it resurrects our mind to focus on the only true hope that we have. Across history, he's the only one to by his own power raise from the dead. And if he truly has been raised from the grave, then life as we know it has changed. It's changed. And so this morning, I invite you to peer into the empty tomb, as it were, and to see that Christ is indeed risen. 
And because he's risen, you also can rise. Your sins can be forgiven and you can have true meaning in your life. Meaning that doesn't pass away. Meaning that will last. So my friends, resurrection is incredibly important. It is well established and it is far reaching. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a well established fact that demands an appropriate response. And so my final question for you this morning is this. What is your response? Let's pray. Father, we sit under the weight of that question. Where will we invest our lives? What will we do with our time? What will we do with our talents? What will we do with our treasure? Will we focus it on the empty tomb and the implications of that empty tomb? Or will we allow it to be spread abroad and give to those things that promise fulfillment and yet never do? Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the testimony. We pray that you would give us increased faith. We pray that we would trust in what you're doing this morning in our lives, collectively and individually. And Father, we pray that you'd give us the courage to turn from our idols and to truly trust in you this morning. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.